Happy New Year to you guys. Feels like it's been a while since we've been together, doesn't it? Had a little week off in between Christmas and New Year, but we're back at it. We're ready to go. As Justin talked about a moment ago, uh, for those of you who are new to Connect Church, we want to just invite you to that Get Connected session, which will be next Sunday after the second service. As he said, noon is our start time right back here. We'll serve the light lunch. The only thing I would ask is uh, please pre-register. You can either do that online through what you just saw there, the guide, or you can do it on the, uh, uh, at, the, at the welcome desk right out in the front. We're so glad you're here today. Hopefully you guys had a good Christmas. Did everyone have a good Christmas for the most part? Hopefully you did. Uh, We had a great time. My daughter came home from college and we got to spend some time with her for a few days. That was really special. It was our first Christmas without having everyone living in our house, uh, you know, full time. Uh, First year of her being away. But it's been really good. Um, But I'll tell you what, in our house, I don't know how it was with you guys, but we got to a point where we were kind of ready to turn the corner pretty quickly after Christmas. I don't know what, it, what it's like in your home, but in our home, usually the decorations stay up for, I don't know, a week or so after Christmas Day, and they would just kind of linger, and then we get it to them when we get to them kind of thing. But, but we just got them down this year, and we were kind of ready. I think it was kind of symbolic of this, this, this anticipation that we have for the, the new year. We're just really excited about what we think God is doing in our lives and in our family, and we're just ready to, you know, as great as Christmas was, We're just ready to see something new and to step into something new. And so today, you know, like many of you, I'm thinking in terms of New Year's resolutions, right? I'm thinking in terms of these goals that we all tend to set, where we look at ourselves, we look at our situation in life, we look at where we are versus where we want to be, and we're trying to fill that gap with these goals that will help us get from point A to point B to point Z, you know, all the way through. And so we're, many, we're, we're making these resolutions, we're, we're making these goals, we're figuring out where we want to be, and I just want to encourage you, if you've done that already this year, there's something I want to ask you to consider adding to your list. I know some of you are thinking, well, I can't take on anymore, I've already kind of maxed out my resolutions, but I'm going to ask you to add one more thing, and it's going to be, over these next four weeks, I want to ask you to be here for each of the four weeks. I think this is a really important series that we're going into. There are a lot of people here in this, lot, in this room whose lives will be blessed and really you'll see some tremendous growth if you can take some of the things we're going to be talking about over these next four weeks and apply them to your resolutions. So it's a new series, as you saw there. It's a series that uh, is centered on the subject of margin, living with margin. Now, I want to give you sort of a working definition for us for these next few weeks, what margin is as we're defining it. Because if you look in Webster's Dictionary, it might say something a little bit different than what we're looking at here in this series. But here's how we are defining it. Margin is the space between our load and our limits. It's the space between your load, what you are carrying, versus your limits, what you're physically or spiritually or emotionally able to carry. Years ago, Jess and I bought a house, and it just so happened that it was downhill from another house. You know, there was a quite a pretty steep grade from this one house down to ours. And, um, and, and we bought this house, and we knew it had a lot of work that needed to be done. And one of the things that we knew needed to be done was it needed some foundation uh, repair because there had been some damage that had been caused by the water sliding downhill. And then there was no, you know how, at, at, in your, if those of you who are homeowners, you know this, you're supposed to grade 
persuade the dirt away from your house so water doesn't puddle against your house and then soak in and damage your foundation, right? So whoever lived there before us, this didn't happen. The water just slid right down the hill, puddled against our house, damaged the foundation, and we knew this going in, so we bought it with that in mind and and fixed the foundation. But one of the first things I did was I decided I was going to go and I was going to fix this problem so we didn't have it happen again. And so I borrowed a trailer from my father-in-law. My father-in-law gave me his trailer and hooked it up to the back of the car, and and I drove out to one of these places east of town where you can kind of get the fill dirt and all that sort of thing. So I think the agreement there was like, it was something like $10 for a load. And if you know me, you know I'm always looking for a good deal, so I'm trying to get the most on my trailer that I can, because that's 10 bucks, and I don't want to have to do a lot of trips back and forth. This is heavy labor, and you can see I'm not real used to heavy labor. I'm kind of uh, delicate like that, I guess. Um, (laughs) And, uh, and, and so I, I was just going to load as much onto this trailer as I could. And I get there, and I'm looking at the trailer, and I don't know what the load is. I don't even know how I would know when I got to that amount, even if it said it's this many pounds. I don't have any idea. So I'm just loading and loading and loading, and I'm thinking about saving money, and I'm thinking about not taking a lot of trips. And all I'm doing to make sure I think I'm fine is I'm bending over every once in a while and checking to see if the tires are flat yet. <laughs> and they weren't flat And so I felt like I could still add a little more dirt. So I kept loading and I kept loading. And before long, I was like, you know what? That's probably pretty good. So I I put the shovel down and I drive off and I make it about a quarter mile down the road out here on old 24. And of course, you know what happens. Tire on the trailer blows, you know, like I say, a quarter mile away from where I was. So This is what happens when we live overloaded. That trailer was not intended to carry that load that I was putting upon it. But this is how so many of us live our lives. We live overloaded. We live with too much stuff on us that is more than what we were created to carry. And it's causing all kinds of problems in our lives. These day and, this day and age, I don't know about you, but I find that work can be very demanding for me. I find in addition to that, the demands of my kids and all the activities that they have and all the different things that I want to help them do have me going in a lot of di- different directions. I also, like many of you, have some semblance of a social life and there are demands there. There are demands in in church involvement and demands in volunteer obligations and and activities and all these different things that have us going in all kinds of different directions for so much of our days. And, And so many of these things that are vying for our attention and for our resources are good. But here's what happens. We are taking on more than we can in so many ways, and it's causing problems. There are so many people in this room, there are so many people in our city who are dealing with symptoms of overloaded, of being overloaded. Things like stress, anxiety, depression. People are dealing with marital stress. People are dealing with financial stress. People are dealing with physical pain in their bodies that is a direct result of living an overloaded life. And I'm telling you this morning, this is not the life that God created you to live. It's not. It's simply not what God intended for you when he created you and brought you into relationship with him, for those of you who who would call yourselves followers of Jesus. 
In 3 John chapter 1, let me just read this to you. This is John, who many of you know is one of Jesus' closest friends. He was one of the disciples um, and later became an apostle, one of the church founders. And this is during that season. Jesus has been resurrected, and and he's writing this letter to, um, to a friend. And he says this, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be healthy, even as your soul prospers. Now, the subject of prosperity in many church circles is a bit of a taboo subject. Some of us have been raised in places where we don't really talk about that because there are people who have talked about prosperity in a way to make it something that it is not. And and I'm here to tell you today that God's desire is that your soul would prosper. But I don't think prosperity necessarily has to do with everything that certain pastors and preachers would tell you that it is. Prosperity, at its core, has to do with the wholeness and the completion of your soul. There's, there's this sense uh, that, that God wants you to live a life where you lack nothing, where you feel complete in who you are in him, lacking for nothing. But so many of us are living lives that are far from that kind of existence. Let me give you a, a visual to just kind of really hammer home this idea of what a marginless life looks like. Let me show you this first picture. It's a, it's a house. Um, let's see, do we have that picture? So this is a, a house, um, and, and I, I'm just going to say this. I, I don't mean to make light. This is obviously a hoarder's house, right? And the, I think there is a psychological affliction that comes with being a hoarder, and I'm not making light of that in any way. But what I'm doing is making this point that a house was not created to pile stuff in. A house was created for you to live in, for you to have peace and space for building relationships and and space for creating memories and space for rest. And how is anyone going to be able to do any of that there unless the, the relationship you're building is with somebody who's helping you clean, right? Like that's about the only thing you can really accomplish in a space like this. This is marginless room. This is marginless physical space. Let me show you another picture and and compare and contrast here. This first picture is of of a typical book. Um, And have you ever noticed that, you know, whether it's an e-reader or whether it's a physical hard copy book, uh, you always have the, you know, the text in the middle, but then you've got margin. You've got space around the edge. Have you ever thought about how important that is to your well-being when you are reading a book? There is something about it that puts us at ease. Let's show you the uh, other version of this. Uh, so this is a marginless book where there are no margins. Now, I look at that and I feel anxious, I look at that and I feel unsettled. I look at that and I feel stressed. I feel like I actually saw one version, (coughs) excuse me, of this where there weren't even paragraph breaks. Could you imagine reading a book like that? Like, where do you stop to think? Where do you stop to answer your kids' questions? Where do you stop to catch a breath, you know? It feels like you're just going and going and going and and it creates that anxiety within me and I'm sure many of you as well. Back in 2007, I had the privilege of traveling to New Orleans, Louisiana for the first time in my life. And this was two years after the horrible event that was Hurricane Katrina. And Hurricane Katrina, as you know, came through, swept through, and there was crazy winds. But there was also a ton of rain that came in and overwhelmed their sewage and their drainage systems. So much water dumped on a small space in a short amount of time that it completely overwhelmed that city. 
And, and when I was there two years later, I wasn't seeing water, but I was seeing the aftermath, the destruction that was left from that water. And, and if you were like me back in 2005, I was sitting at home watching the news and looking at pictures and images like this, where often I would see people up on roofs of houses waiting for helicopters to come and save them because the water you know, had flooded their home and maybe it was contaminated and there was bacteria and there was just not safe to be down in there. And, you know, when, when we were looking at those images, we were all beginning to see just how destructive water can be without margin. Do you realize that so many good things, and water is obviously a good thing. We need water to refresh us. We need water to be healthy. It, it is a very good thing. I don't, I don't know about you, but when I think of dangerous things, water is not usually on my top 10 <laughs> or even top 50, right? Water doesn't seem like a dangerous, destructive thing, but the reality is that water without margin is incredibly, powerfully destructive, And this is true of so many things in our lives, good things that God created and gave us the ability to do that are supposed to be for our good, but without margin, they become destructive to us. Your ability to earn a living is a blessing from God. It's a good thing, but without margin in this area, you become a workaholic and risk losing the people who are closest to you. Your your financial resources are good. A lot of good things that can be done when you use those for good means. You can live a comfortable life. You can bless the people you love. You can bless strangers through your generosity. Finances and having resources is a powerful, amazing thing. But if you don't have margin in the area of your finances, you become a slave to debt. Your time is another gift from God. It is a good thing. You can accomplish good things with your time. You can be productive. You can make this world a better place. But if you don't learn this concept of margin, you will become overstressed, overcommitted, and burn out and become good to nobody. Good things without margin are extremely destructive to your soul. And your soul is the the part of you that God wants to prosper and to be complete and whole. So it raises this question. If this is such a problem for us, why do we allow ourselves to live this way? Why do we fall into this trap of living marginless lives? I think at the core, every one of us, if we were really honest with ourselves, if we can identify an area of our lives where we are living without margin, I think the answer for us is very simply, it comes down to the idea of fear. Fear is always at the middle of this kind of issue. Fear that I won't have enough if I don't spend every waking hour working. Fear that I won't matter if I don't say yes to every opportunity that comes my way. Fear that I won't look successful and be approved of if I don't spend every dime I make to keep up with my neighbors and on their exotic vacations and their shiny new cars. Today, I want to talk to you about how important margin is to your soul. I want to lay the foundation and the groundwork for where we're going over these next four weeks. And I want you to understand that fear is always at odds with faith. Fear is always at odds with faith. Every single time. 
And today we're going to begin to lay out this idea that living a life where margin is a part of your existence is actually an exercise of, of faith. So if you look up, uh, you know, if you were to go into the Bible and say, hey, I want to do a study, they're going to be talking about margin over these next few weeks. I just want to see what the Bible has to say about that. And you go to a concordance and you just look up the word margin. Okay, M-M-A-R, there it is. You're not going to find the word margin in the Bible, okay? I'm just kind of giving you a little bit of a, it just isn't there from what we can, from what I can tell in any of the translations I've seen. However, the concept of margin is all throughout the Bible. It starts in the very beginning. It's reaffirmed by God when he's establishing his relationship with his people. And later on, Jesus actually reaffirms it and the concept of it in the New Testament. And so today what I want to do is I want to just go back to that season in history where God is... um, establishing a relationship with his people. Now, many of you know the, the, the story of the Old Testament, kind of the timeline and how it goes, but let me just kind of give you a basic understanding of where I'm going here today. In the Old Testament, <clears throat> the part of the Bible before Jesus, um, the Jewish people became God's people. He called them, he identified them, he, he, he pulled them out from the world, and he said, you are mine. And he started this with Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob's name was later changed to Israel, and he became the father of the 12 tribes. He had 12 sons, and if you've heard of the tribes of Israel, each of them were his sons. And Jacob, or Israel, his life and his existence was lived in freedom. But during his lifetime, a famine came and caused the people of Israel, the families that had been born into this Jewish heritage, to have to go to Egypt for shelter, for for, um, a season of sanctuary there. And so they go to Egypt because there's food there. And while they're there, they become enslaved to the Egyptian people. And the Egyptians become very, very, very cruel masters. And for about 400 years, the people of Israel are, are basically, they're just Egyptian slaves. They have no identity as God's people. They have no identity as Jews or Hebrews or Israelites or whatever you want to call them. They have no identity of their own. And so, and so when they begin to cry out for a deliverer, God sends them a deliverer named Moses. And Moses miraculously, some of you know the story, leads them out of Egypt. And once they're led out of Egypt, they have this amazing experience where God begins to reintroduce himself to them. All the people had spent their entire lives as Egyptian slaves. They didn't know what it meant to be a Hebrew. They didn't know what it meant to worship Yahweh, the name of God that had been revealed to them. They had no idea how to do any of this. And so when God pulls them out of Egypt, he's basically saying, listen, we're going to start from scratch. We're going to establish who you are, and we're going to establish who I am, and this is how we're going to do it. One of the things he does at the beginning is he begins to give them the law, the law of God. Now, just like when uh, our forefathers here in America declared their independence from Britain, we started by establishing, you know, code of conduct, right? The, here's the Bill of Rights. Here's the, you know, the, here's our laws. Here's how we will conduct ourselves in this new society. And so God is doing that with them. But through the law that God gives them, 
The people are getting to see who he is because they see what's important to him. They see his character. They see his values. And this is a brand new society and, and God gives them a whole bunch of laws. It, to be exact, uh, Bible scholars will tell you that there were 613 unique laws that were given over the course of the next several years. It wasn't dumped on them all at once. It was revealed as they could, and it was written down, and it was carried forward by their prophet Moses. And so these 613 rules were assembled, and of those 613, today what I want to do is I want to look closely at three of those rules that really help to set this concept of margin up as God's plan for his people. So there are three laws that we're going to really focus on today, the first of which is the law of the Sabbath, all right? You guys have heard of this, right? Sabbath. It's the Hebrew idea that there must be a day where we take a day off. Every seven days, there is one day where we take a day off. This this comes to us from the Ten Commandments, the fourth of the first Ten Commandments that God gives. God gives these ten original commands and says, listen, I'm going to give you some more, but I want you to start here. These are really important. It's things like... Uh, the first three have to deal with, you know, how they relate to God, and then the fourth one is the one we're going to look at here in a moment, and then the fifth, and the last six have to do, deal with how you relate to each other. And so God gives them these commandments, and the fourth one there is in verse 8 of chapter 20. He says, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now, he goes on and he explains what he means. Nobody works, not anyone in your home, not any of your people, not any of your servants. Nobody works. This is a day of rest. And he takes it back to creation where he says that for God created the world in seven days, but on, uh, in six days, but on the seventh day, he rested. And so that is why you were to do this. And so God takes it back to his example that he set in creation many, 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 many generations before this. So essentially what this law is, is it's a requirement for rest, a requirement to recharge, to to lean back and to let your body get the, the energy and the restoration that it needs after a busy work week. And so this had been completely foreign to them. The Israelites had only known a life of slavery. And as you can imagine, in that existence, their entire day was spent working every day. And so God has to kind of train the way they think a little bit differently because they'd never known a day of rest before this. And they, they're, they're beginning this new, um, you know, they, they, they know how to be productive because that's all they've ever been. That's all they've ever known. But now they're going out and they're starting this new, this new society. They have no cities. They have no infrastructure. They have no system of commerce. They have nothing. They have no sewage, no streets, nothing. And so they know that it's going to take a lot of work to get this new society up and going. But God says, you are not to work yourself to the bone. You are not to work yourself to the point where you cannot take on any more. So at the very beginning, at the, at the very beginning of the season where God is introducing himself to them, he gives them these 10 commandments. And number four is you have to take a day to rest. You have to do this. And so God commands them. Now I want to ask you this question 
of, if you are obedient to this particular command, who benefits? Who benefits from resting? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's the commandment. Who benefits if, if you obey? See, Jesus said many, many years after this, he, he was being uh, challenged as he was dealing with, um, as he was dealing with uh, the, some, some religious leaders who really wanted to, to challenge him on him healing somebody on the Sabbath. And Jesus makes this point, um, and he says, listen, he says, guys, you're, get, you're getting it all backwards. The Sabbath was created for man. Man was not created for the Sabbath. In other words, the whole point is that man is benefiting from this. You and I are benefiting by obeying this law. The law doesn't, we don't exist so the law can be there. The law exists so that we can thrive and, and, and live a life where our souls prosper. And so the lesson of Sabbath is essentially this. It's this. Trust that God can meet your needs even when you don't fill every available hour of your time with work. Trust that God can meet your needs. Trust him. Let's move on to the second of these three commands that we're going to look at today. And this one is the law of the tithe. Now, the law of the tithe is essentially this, if this is a new concept to you. The law of the tithe is the spiritual practice of percentage giving. It's a financial resources uh, commandment. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, we see God talking about this. He says, you must set aside the tithe of your crops, one-tenth of your crops uh, you harvest each year. Bring this tithe to the designated place of worship, the place where the Lord your God chooses for his name to be honored, and eat it there in his presence. This applies to your tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil, and the firstborn males of your flocks and herds. Do this. Doing this will teach you to always fear the Lord your God. Now, this is an interesting thing. Now, remember, they didn't have a system of commerce with coins and dollar bills and anything like that. Their wealth was what they produced. So their crops, their wine, their oil, their livestock, all of these things. And God teaches them, listen, guys, and this is essentially, there are a lot of applications under this, this spiritual concept of tithe, and we're not going to get it. This isn't a teaching on tithe or anything like that. What this is, is this is a teaching on margin. So I want to focus on that element of tithe. Essentially, at the core of the, the idea of God requiring people to take a tenth and put it toward the use of developing their society and developing their, you know, and meeting people's needs within their community. That's what it was all about. And, and supporting, you know, the, the, you know the, the spiritual institutions. In addition to that, there's this idea that people are learning for the first time in their lives that they cannot live off of 100% of what they make. You see, my kids are now older. My oldest is 18. My youngest is 11. Um, but for many years, we've been working with them. When they get an allowance or when they earn some money babysitting or doing a job around the house or whatever it is, we try to teach them this idea. Listen, guys, we want you to give some. We want you to save some. And we want you to live off the rest. Give some. Save some and live off the rest. And one of my kids in particular, this is a challenge because my one kid wants to spend everything that comes in, every dime. 
And I think God, when he was dealing with the Israelites, they had no idea how to handle money. They had, no, they had never owned anything before this point. And God is teaching them, listen, guys, if you're going to be good stewards, if you're going to be good managers of the resources that I give to you, I need you to understand, number one, you cannot live off of everything you make. And I'm telling you here today, some of you, this is a challenge to, to us right now. If you were living off of 100% of your income, you need to figure out some space for margin, some space so that you have that, that cushion. So as God was leading his people out of, of Israel, this was something that he, or I'm sorry, out of Egypt into their promised land, this was something that he had to teach them and he had to develop within them. And he ends this, this commandment in Deuteronomy that we just read by saying, doing this will teach you to always fear the Lord your God. Now what is he saying there? That word fear can be a little bit um, misunderstood sometimes, especially if you're not real familiar with this kind of thing. Fear here has nothing to do with being afraid of him. Fear in this context means to honor God, to understand who he is and and, and that he is first and foremost in this world and first and foremost in your life. And so... This is actually, this is why we talk about it when Justin was up here a few minutes ago and people were giving. This is an act of worship. Doing this, participating in this is an act of worship. It's putting God first over everything else in your life. Then thirdly, there's this third law. And this is probably the one you may be the least familiar with. I know it's one that I'd read through at times in my life, but I didn't understand it. So I just kind of skip right through it. Didn't get it. It's the law of gleanings. And it comes to us from Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. And, and, and God commands the people in this way. He says, when you harvest your crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields. So when your guys are going out there to harvest, I, leave the edges. You know, it's like the way my, my son mows the lawn. You know what I mean? Leave the edges. And dad will come through, I guess, and clean it up if... Uh, but leave the edges. Don't go in and don't do those parts. Um, do not, and then he says this, and do not pick up the har- what the harvesters drop. In this, this is the same way with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines and do not pick the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord, your God. Now, I've had trouble with this for a lot of years of my life. It just... Oh man, it just, I really had trouble understanding what God was trying to get at because this seems like a really strange law. So listen guys, you know that field you own out there and you've got all those crops that you planted? Get this, when you go to harvest, you're not allowed to pick it all up. I want you to leave some intentionally around the edges and anything you miss, just leave it. Anything you drop, just leave it. That is not yours. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, what in the world? That's my field, you know? That's mine. That's money left on the table if I'm just leaving stuff behind intentionally. That doesn't make sense. But God is saying to them, listen, I want you to trust me in this. That grain that you left behind, that's to meet the needs of somebody else. That's not yours. I want you to understand that everything you have There's margin in it, and you have to trust me in that margin. And he ends this commandment by saying, I am the Lord, your God. 
So he says, don't do this, don't do this, make sure you leave this, make sure you leave this. I am the Lord your God. And man, I look at that and I just think to myself, what in the world? Is that like his sign off, you know, like Seacrest out or whatever, you know, at the end of his uh, commandments. That's just how he ends them. But that's not what he's doing here. He's giving them this commandment and then he's reminding them, listen, this is who I am. I am the Lord who has brought you out of that mess you were in. I am the Lord who has promised to meet your needs. I am the Lord who will meet your needs. And I'm asking you to trust me in this. And so from those three laws, this concept of tithe and gleanings and Sabbath continued throughout the Old Testament days up until Jesus' lifetime. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, Jesus reaffirms this This basic idea. In one of his most famous messages, Jesus is teaching, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching this big crowd of people. And in Matthew chapter 6, we have a part of this this message that he shared to these people. He's standing on a mountainside, and people are out below him in the valley. And Jesus says in verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, let me do a little teaching on the side of this because I really think that this is something that, again, I didn't get it for many years. And I think once I did get it, it just kind of clicked with me. I get it now. And it's really an important lesson. God's not saying anything bad about money, like, hey, money's bad, money's terrible, don't try to earn money. No, God, there are a lot of, that, that would be contradictory to what he said in other places. You know, work hard, earn a living. There, there are many, many places where God is instilling in people work ethic and an understanding of their, their responsibility in the world. So what he's saying here, the, the Greek word that is translated into English as money is actually this Greek word called mammon. Now, mammon is a concept rather than a thing. Mammon is this idea that anything that you think is an answer to your problems that is not God, that is mammon. And so what he's saying here is, listen, you cannot be fully devoted and trusting in me and yet hold on to these other things that you think are going to save you. Let me give you an example. If you're in a financial place where you just, you know, the business hasn't been good this year, and you're hurting, you, and you look at your situation and you just think, boy, if only I can get that promotion. If only my boss will see how well I've worked. That's my solution. That's my answer. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to hope or work toward a promotion, but your answer is not the promotion. Your answer is God, who you'll see in a moment, already knows your needs, if you have a wealthy relative and you're sitting there thinking to yourself, man, if only this, this person in my life would just see the situation I'm in, man, then maybe they would bless me and I could dig myself out of this mess or whatever, and you're thinking that way, then I'm telling you right now, you are putting your faith not in God, but in mammon. And Jesus said it himself, you cannot trust this and trust that at the same time. It's one or the other. 
And so Jesus goes on from this and he teaches this, this amazing lesson where he says, you know, essentially he says, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to drink and, and clothing to wear. And he talks about the, the um, wildflowers and how beautiful they are. And he talks about the sparrows in the air and how God takes care of them. And he goes on and he kind of wraps that whole thought up in verse 32 where he says this. He says, these things, which, uh, the, you know, like, what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? How am I going to have enough? How, is it, how am I going to look? And, you know, these are the things, he says, that dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. And then he, he kind of, he, he, he gives them the idea. He says, he says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Seek God first. Put your faith in him and not in circumstances. And you will have everything you need. So here's what I want you to, what I want you to understand about this, these laws that we talked about that all have to deal with this concept of margin. There is one kind of silver lining through all of them, and it's essentially this. Every one of them requires trust in God. Absolute, rock-solid trust in God, that he is who he says he is, and he will do what he said he would do. See, if I'm a workaholic, and I am trying to squeeze every last penny out of every last effort and leave nothing on the table, then what I'm doing is I am taking all the control of my life and I'm squeezing it and I'm holding on to it and I'm making myself my provider, my savior, all of that. Now again, I'm not saying you shouldn't be a hard, diligent worker. The Bible is full of examples of verses that, that affirm that way of thinking and that way of living. But what God is saying here is that you, if you don't leave room in the margins, you don't leave room for God to work on your behalf. And that's what, that's what margin is all about. It's all about learning to live dependent on God. It is an exercise of faith. Remember how I said a little bit ago, fear and faith are always at odds? And fear drives us to think that we won't have enough. And fear drives us to think that we won't uh, look good enough. And fear drives us to think we won't matter in this world. Faith comes along and it, it, it makes space for God to, to move on our behalf. Faith, when you exercise faith by living with margin, this is what happens. You begin to exercise this faith that God will do more with the six days of work plus one day of rest than you could have done with seven days of work yourself. Faith that God can make the 90% of your income go farther to meet your needs than the 100% would have without his help. Faith that God will use you to meet the needs of others and still provide for your needs if you understand that God has blessed you so that you can be a blessing to others. See, what you need to understand here today is that you have a choice to make. You can live your life at the max, overloaded, trying to get the most out of every situation, trying to squeeze every last dime out of every last thing. You can live that way 
But if you're doing that, you're living in fear. And what you're doing is you're risking burnout and you're not giving God any space to move on your behalf. Or you can choose to live in faith. You can live beneath your means. You can live with time allowed for for rest. And you can trust that God will still come through for you and he will move on your behalf in the margins. It really is your choice. I don't know about you, but here at the beginning of 2020, man, I'm looking forward to a season in my life where I can just trust him in some of these areas that are really difficult for me. And some of these areas, you know, you're hearing me talk about them and you're, you're being challenged. There's one area in particular that stands out. Maybe you are that workaholic or maybe you are somebody who lives on 100% or 110% of what your income is. You need to find space and you need to trust God to provide and to meet your needs in that extra space that he's asked for. Let me pray for you today. Father, thank you so much for your love, which is at the center of all this. God, we know that you love us, and we know that because you love us, you have good for us. So Lord, you're not, you're not calling us to a life where we will um, you know, be lacking and, and not complete, Lord. You're calling us to a life where our needs are met, and then we have enough to share with others. And so Father, we ask that in every way you would challenge us in the beginning of this this new year to think differently about rest and about space between our load and our limits because that's where you work thank you in jesus name amen